Lord God, we just thank you so much for this time of year. It's always festive. It's always enjoyable to be with family and loved ones and, and just take some time to be thankful. Lord, we pray for those who are traveling, those who are away, or even those who um, the holiday season's not so happy. Lord, we pray for your comfort, your presence, your hand over them as well. And Lord, we pray as we get into your word, as um, we open our ears and our hearts to you, we pray that your spirit would speak to us. And we give this time to you, Lord, in your name. Amen. As I mentioned, hopefully you were able to spend some good time with family. Um, Thanksgiving is, is, you know, we were able to spend time with my family and both sides. And, and uh, every Thanksgiving, it always reminds me of childhood, right? I appreciate my family. I appreciate the times we can get together, both my own family, or Jamie and I's family, as well as my extended family. But whenever Thanksgiving hits, it always reminds me of growing up my childhood and being around Thanksgiving, my, my siblings, my parents getting together, and, and it's always big meals and stuff. And when I think about my parents, it really makes me appreciate, especially being a parent myself, it makes me appreciate my parents even more. And, uh, you know, when I think about my parents, my mom and my dad, uh, they were very different in many ways. And I was reflecting on this uh, this past couple weeks, and their parenting style was very different from each other. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, or maybe you want to raise your hands. How many of you, your, both your parents definitely have different parenting styles, right? You can admit to that. My dad, he was very a laid-back personality, right? So his parenting style is kind of like he, he kind of trusted, I'm going to say it was trust, right? He let me kind of learn on my own, we didn't have a whole lot of lecturing sessions, right? So you kind of let me kind of experience and learn on my own, and I'm going to assume it's because he trusted me, right? That's what I'm going to assume. My mom's parenting style was a little bit more, shall we say, in tuned, right? I remember a little bit more uh, conversations, shall we say. So they had very different parenting styles, but what I appreciate and what uh, Jamie and I have tried to do with our own kids is we try to balance the two. The balance between letting your child learn their experiences on their own, and then when to intervene and teach them some things about whatever they're going through. But this is a big challenge for parents, right? Parents, how many could agree? This is a big challenge when it comes to parenting. One of the most difficult and even painful experiences to go through as a parent is watching your child struggle or suffer. That is one of the most painful, hard, most difficult things about parenting. And there's no age limit to this either. It's hard to see your five-year-old like have no one to play with in the playground. Right? That's hard to see. And it's hard to see your 25-year-old have no one to play with on the playground, right? You know, or maybe not so much that experience. But it's hard for them to see your adult children have to struggle in a very cruel, painful adult world. It's hard to do that as a parent, to see your child of any age 
struggle and have difficulties. It's heartbreaking for a parent to see that with their kids. You just want to kind of swoop in, right? As a parent, when you see your kid struggle or in pain, you want to swoop in and just try to make everything better for them. And there are some parents who really try to do that, right? They want to make sure their child doesn't experience any adversity, anything negative, so they kind of put them in like bubble wrap to make sure nothing happens, nothing bad happens to them. So the struggle with parents, when do you step in and when do you let your child learn for themselves? That's tough. How do you help them when they don't want your help? When they refuse your help? Do you do it anyways? Right? I'm sure if we're your parents, we've all been in these situations. And one thing I, I think I've mentioned before, what parenting has really taught me Parenting really teaches you a lot about God. He gi- it gives you a glimpse of God's perspective. And I think many people take issue with God. They have a lot of issues with God. They reject God's existence. Or at least this idea of God as being a loving God because of their own lives. Or they look at suffering, whether it's their own suffering or the suffering in the world or suffering from people they care about. And they take issue with God because they ask what? Those very common questions, right? If there is a God, why is there evil in this world? Maybe you've thought that and asked that. Or if God is so loving, Why is there so much suffering in this world? Maybe some of you are wrestling with that question to this day. These are very common, understandable questions that many have wrestled with. But these questions also come with a lot of presuppositions and personal expectations of what they think, or someone who's asking that, what they think God is or who God is supposed to be. Here's some of the presuppositions when people ask about, well, why does God allow these sufferings? If God exists, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? By asking that question, you kind of come in with these certain presuppositions or expectations of God. One being, God must not allow any evil, right? That question really asks it. If God exists, God must not allow any evil. And if God exists, God must eliminate all options of evil, right? Third thing, God must not allow any suffering for any reason, God must allow human freedom until it is no longer pleasurable. Right? These presuppositions going to that question, questioning God's existence because of suffering and evil in the world. If God exists, he should not allow any suffering for any reason. And God must allow human freedom until it no longer becomes pleasurable for the person, for the human. Also, God ought to determine people's behavior to eliminate the possibility of suffering and evil. 
You following what I'm saying? When people question God's existence because of suffering and evil, it comes with this perspective that if God exists, he must eliminate all these things. He must not allow any of these things. And he must determine everything unless it goes against a person's pleasure and then they kind of question God's intervention. And I guess most people, when they ask the question, if God exists, why is there so much suffering? Why is there evil? Why, do, why is there so much things happening in my life? People probably don't think with these kind of presuppositions. They're probably not aware of the ramifications of what they're asking about God. And they probably don't think about that people actually want to dictate who they believe God is and what God should do and who God should be. We're going to address this topic, but we're going to address it over a few messages because this topic is a little too big for just one sermon and particularly in this passage. But we're going to tackle some of these issues in the next several passages. But today I want us to focus on God's perspective. We've been looking at the days of Noah leading up to the flood, right? And so today we're going to focus on God's perspective, what he saw, what he experienced as he saw the days of Noah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 6. Genesis 6, verse, I'm sorry, verse 5. Reads like this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was, so, was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth." Now, if you've been with us the last several weeks, I cover the most probably difficult parts to interpret in verse or trans, interpret in verses one through four. And then last week we saw the state of the world at this time. As people began to multiply, there seems to be this mingling of disobedience of the supernatural and the natural, right? With the angelic realm, the fallen angels and, uh, and if humans and people. But we saw that the extent of sin on earth was such that what every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. So the world at this time was marked by what? Continuous evil intent and thoughts. It was violent and it was corrupt. So to the point that if you, I, if you mentioned or if you remember last week, in Genesis 1.31, it went from, and God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. To what? Chapter 6, verse 12. 
And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted the way upon the earth. So it went from when God created that it was all very good to a point where all of creation was corrupted by sin. But notice God's response to what he saw in verse 6. It says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now let that soak in for a moment. This description of God is probably not what you're used to thinking about when it comes to God. Most people don't think about this aspect or this picture of God, this perception. It's interesting here in verse 6, it's coupled, there's two words that are coupled together. These two Hebrew words. The NSB translates these words as sorry and grieved. The Hebrew word here that's translated for sorry means to be moved to pity, to suffer grief, to repent. And then the word to be grieved, to hurt, to feel grieved. Essentially that word sorry is repeated again in verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, for I am sorry that I have made them. So it's not just man's interpretation, but we see it in verse 6, and then we see God saying, for I am sorry that I have made them. This term carries, uh, for sorry, carries a feeling of suffering grief. I don't know how many of you can relate to experiencing suffering grief. Maybe it was the passing of a loved one. Maybe as a parent, you're seeing your child struggle or someone you care about struggle and you suffer from grief. It's not just you're feeling sad, but it's like you hurt inside. What's interesting about this term also is that it expresses repentance, meaning a change of course, a change of course of action. And you think about, well, wait a second, how do we relate God with this meaning of repentance or a change of course? Well, of course, when in reference to God, we're not implying that God committed sin or wrongdoing, but rather it's an expression of a change of course or will. And this isn't the only instance in Scripture where we see this in reference to God. If you go into Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, when God had led the Israelites out of Egypt, and Moses went up to meet the Lord up in the mountain, and when he came down, the Israelites, they're like, I don't know what's going on with Moses. He's taking too long. Let's build a calf, an idol to worship. And God was so angry, he wanted to wipe them out. But Moses interceded and entreated to God on behalf of the Israelites. So God tells Moses in Exodus 32, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he had said he would do to his people. The same word we see here in Genesis. We have another example. When God had brought King Saul up. But King Saul disobeyed God. 
1 Samuel 15, 11, God is speaking to Samuel and he says, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Saul was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Same word used there. So this verb used conveys both deep distress, distress, right, if I said that right, but also a desire for a change of course, a change of course of action. And if you think about the meaning of repentance for us, right, when we think of repentance, what are we meaning? We need to feel sorrow for the sins that we have committed. We need to feel bad enough grieved enough that we want a change of course of action. That's what repentance is. To want a change of course. We feel so bad of what we've done, so ashamed what we've done, right? As sinners, that we want to change the course. That's what it means for repentance for us. For God, it's not that he committed a sin or wrongdoing. But here we see what God is experiencing pain or grief and is changing course. Here we also see God is described as grieved in his heart, that he feels pain in his heart. Isn't that kind of interesting? Think about this. God declared Eve and Adam would experience pain as a result of their disobedience, right? Eve would experience pain in childbirth. Adam would experience pain and work in the fields. There would be a struggle there. It's interesting that here, God is experiencing pain in his heart over man's evil disobedience. It's interesting, right? Paul warns believers in Ephesians chapter 4.30. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We've seen in Jesus' ministry that he laments. He is grieved. We've seen that happen as Jesus laments over Jerusalem in Matthew and in Luke. But see, we often don't conceive of God this way. We don't think about God being grieved by what we do. Sometimes we think either love or anger, right? God must be angry with me, or God must love me so much that he's gonna forgive me. But I don't know how much we really think about how much we may grieve the Lord by what he sees. One of my deepest regrets in childhood, I was a pretty uh, short-tempered kid. And one of my biggest regrets is how much I must have hurt my mom's heart. How much I must have broken her heart with my attitude. I had a pretty bad attitude at times. How many times did my attitude hurt my dad, who was so quiet? I mean, I don't know how you can argue with him, but how many times my attitude expressed to him must have hurt his heart. And as once being a kid, and I'm still a kid, right? Kids do not consider the feelings of their parents. They just react, right? 
They just emote. They just explode, right? They got hormones all raging in there, so they just, just pop off, right? I don't know many kids, like, before they get all angry, they get, wait, before I do, uh, how's my mom and dad going to feel about what I say? Right? You just react, and then you kind of deal with the aftermath afterwards. But the truth is, parents have feelings too. Did you know that? Parents have feelings too. They just tend to hide it better, or perhaps they mask it with more anger, right? They kind of go back at you, and they get upset, and you think, oh, they're just angry, and so it kind of hides their pain. Parents have hormones too, right? Parents' hormones can rage as well, right? So kids don't often think about their parents' feelings, but parents, before you get too hard on your kids for reacting and responding a certain way, take some time to think about your own actions. How must God feel when we respond in similar ways, similar manner? For parents who feel the sting of your child's words or actions, remember your own and how much it must wound the Father. How much do we grieve our Jesus, the Holy Spirit? Kind of think about this concept of God. You may wonder, how can we understand God as having feelings other than love or anger, right? Right? And I bring us back again to what we started looking at from the very beginning. That God created us, what, according to his, what? Image and likeness. We were created patterned after God. We're not only his representation on his creation, but we were patterned after him. And we understand ourselves better when we can understand God better not the other way around we have it backwards when we try to understand god by understanding ourselves you know what i mean if we try to understand god based on just understand our our own perspective then we're going to taint we're going to depreciate and we're going to limit and distort our understanding of god We have to first have a better understanding of who God is so that we can understand ourselves better. So when you think about it, you look at this passage, it makes sense that we we feel regrets. We can experience regrets because God wired us as such. We didn't just create this on our own. We experience deep sorrow because what God wired us to be able to experience deep sorrow you think about our human experiences our ability to think our ability to feel the sensations we have is we can experience those things because we are patterned and wired by our creator the problem is the fall corrupted who we are And that knowledge of good and evil ushered in this desire to be self-serving, to seek our own pleasure, right? Which resulted in what? Disobedience. If you even think back, Adam and Eve's sin wasn't that they just ate of the fruit. I don't even think that's where it all began. They were in trouble the moment they started to question God's intentions, 
the moment they started to question God's character, well, you know what? Maybe God is holding back on us. God doesn't really want us to realize our full potential. I think that's where they went wrong. And that hasn't changed for all of humanity ever since. What's God's response to the extent of evil? Let's move on. Verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky. This word blot out, this verb translated, carries this image of erasing by washing, a cleaning out of what is unclean. How many of you hosted Thanksgiving in your homes? None of you, okay. <laughs> Smart people. How many of you remember when you had to and mom and dad said you got cleaning duty? You got to make it spotless clean. How many of you ever had to exterminate your home? Maybe you've had the tent, right? This word blot out to erase by washing or to exterminate. Think of, of a house full of infestation, Right? This term is used in the Old Testament for this idea of removal of sin. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. See, what God declares here is that he is going to wash out the land clean of man's sinfulness. He also says, he declares he's going to what? Destroy them. Verse 13, that God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. That word destroy means to spoil, to ruin, to destroy, to corrupt. The word destroy is the same word that is used in verse 11 to describe man's sinfulness. The result of man's sinfulness in verse 11. Now the earth was what? Corrupt in the sight of God. And the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupted. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. We see the same word translated corrupt in verse 11 and 12. In verse 13, is translated as to destroy. So it's the same word. So what's that saying? Man ruined his way. God's creation was ruined by man. So God will bring ruin onto man. What does that mean? Man will receive the just consequence of his actions. God will bring about judgment upon mankind as consequence for their evil. He's saying, I am going to wipe it all clean. Wipe it clean. Now, some people may ask, well, why did God have to go to that extent? Why did God have to wipe out all of mankind? At the same time, they'll probably ask, why did God allow it to even get to that point? Leads us back to the common questions we looked at earlier in the message. Why does God allow so much suffering? Why does God permit evil? 
Why didn't God make it so that Adam and Eve could never choose evil to begin with? And maybe you've wrestled with those questions. Again, going back to the presuppositions and expectations, if you ask those questions, are you thinking that God must not allow any evil? God must eliminate all options for evil. God must not allow any suffering for any reason. God must allow human freedom until it no longer becomes pleasurable for that person. And God ought to determine people's behavior to eliminate the possibility of suffering and evil. Before you think about those questions, I want to I kind of get you to think about these things first. Several things I want you to think about before, we, before I attempt to answer that question. First, and if you're thinking about those questions, the fact that we may not like an answer does not give us just cause to reject believing in God. Okay? Just because you don't like the answer, it doesn't give you justification to reject believing in God. You may not like an answer, but it doesn't mean it's not true. If you go to a doctor and you get a bad diagnosis, you may not like the report, but just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. We have to kind of understand that if you're going to attempt to answer those questions or even ask those questions, if God is so, if God exists, then why is there evil? You have to understand you may not like the answer, but just because you feel that way doesn't mean it's not true. You follow me? Get that? You may question what the Bible says about God, but I want to challenge you to find any other religious belief, any set of beliefs, that gives you a better case than what the Bible presents about God. That's what we've been looking at in Christian education on Sunday, Sunday mornings. And apologize for learning about other beliefs. Research it. Is there anything that gives you a better case of not only the existence of God, but the God of the Bible? See, we demand an answer to, dis, to kind of satisfy our displeasure. But no matter what that answer is, it doesn't take away from the truth, right? Your feelings about it. So you gotta kind of, you gotta, gotta get that in your head. The second thing, asking such questions can assume a position of authority, right? As if we know better. And we must be careful not to posture ourselves as having a, more, a moral high ground over God. When we ask God why, are we trying to assume a posture of we have some kind of moral authority over God? As if we are to say, God, we know what's better than you. We know what is more fair or just than you. And the third thing, People assume these presuppositions about God that he should eradicate all evil. He should have never let it, allowed it happen in the first place. I don't think these peop the people who have these presuppositions would, would ever desire such conditions in their own relationships. Right? What we're trying to demand of God, I don't think we'd ever want that in your own relationships, whether it's romantic relationships, whether it's marital, whether it's friendships or any other kind of relationship, would you want those kind of conditions in your relationships? You have no choice. 
you must love me. Try that sometime. Go to somebody sometime. Say, I demand you to love me. I will tell you when to do something or not. How many of you would want your parents to have eliminated all possibility of any evil, anything going wrong in your life? You say, well, only when it hurts. Otherwise, what do we have to say to our parents? Can you just leave me alone? I got this. I can do what I want. I know what's right. I know what's good. You see, we, we live in these contrasts here. In one sense, we want God to allow us to have the freedom to do what we want, to believe what we want, but at the same time, we expect God to say, eliminate all the evil things and all the consequences. And say, well, well, you know, well, you know it's just, God, let me tell you when it gets a little hard, and then I'll tell you to step in, right? You see, these mental things that people question God about, we don't really fully think about what we are asking of God. The conclusion. Why is there such evil and suffering? From what we gather thus far from Genesis, right? We're, we're going through the scriptures. So we want to learn what God is revealing to us as we go along, right? God created man with freedom of willful choice. Obedience or disobedience? God's intention or man's intention? And the knowledge of good and evil came with consequences. And those consequences was death and suffering and hardship. And God told Adam from the beginning. He didn't pull a surprise, right? He said, ah, gotcha. You didn't know this, but you're gonna die. He told him from the beginning. But... This didn't begin with just the creation of man. What did we also see? That there was angelic hosts, these supernatural beings who also must have had some kind of will of choice because they disobeyed God as well. So it's interesting, this consequence of rebellion and rejection of God. The consequence of rejection and rebellion against God will be separation from God. You know how I see that? You will receive what you've sown. You will reap what you've sown. If you desire separation from God, you want to reject God, you want to rebel against God, that results in separation from God. The strongest case I think I can make regarding that God created man with freedom of willful choice is our ability to experience love and relationship with God. We were created with the capacity to love and be loved. This is a great gift, right? And this is who God has shown himself to be in Scripture, right? And we're going to see this as we go along in Scripture. He desires to love and be loved. And he created accordingly. If God is one who loves 
and wants to be loved, he created us with that same capacity to love and be loved. But let's make it clear, he does not need our love. We need God's love. God doesn't need our love. Our love does not make God more desirable, more valuable, or any more or less than who he is, right? Because we love God, it doesn't change his value. He's not more lovable. His goodness is not dependent upon our devotion. He's no more or less worthy, right? If we come in Sunday morning and we kind of enter worship and our hands are pogged, we're not really singing very much, it doesn't depreciate God as if he's not any, he's less worthy. But he wants his creation to enjoy his goodness. His nature is good and loving and he created as such. So why is there evil and suffering? Well, what we have seen is that it is a product of man's rebellion against God. And there will always be suffering when man insists on having his way. Now, I know I kind of made a very deep theological point, And I know there are many who may disagree with that theological point, and we will get to that in a future message. So we will deal with that. But the absence of willful choice ultimately leaves God to be the sole determiner of all actions, including evil acts, right? If we don't agree with that, there's a notion of man's willfulness or freedom to be able to choose, then the absence of that willful choice leaves God to be the sole determiner of all actions, including the most evil acts. And I don't know if I can see that consistent with Scripture. Again, we'll go through that. We'll tackle this issue more closely after the flood. But what do we learn about God in this passage? One, we see what God is holy. God is holy. He can no longer tolerate evil. It, it got to a point where he said, enough is enough. If your room gets dirty enough and messy enough, your parents can come in and say, I can't take it anymore. You've got to clean it up, right? God is holy. He can no longer tolerate the degree of evil. God is just and that man will reap what he sows. God is a just God. We also see here God is relational. God doesn't remain distant, but desires relationship. We see that he feels. He is grieved. Fourth, God is merciful. God shows mercy by extending life and opportunity for relationship. And we're going to look at that next week when we see the role of Moses. God reserved final judgment until he said, enough. That's enough. And I believe, as I mentioned last week, our world is heading that direction. Our world is heading that way. And there's going to be a point where God's going to say, enough is enough. 
If you can relate to the ache of a parent watching a wayward child, you have a tiny glimpse of the father's heart. If you as a parent can relate to your heart hurting because of what your child is struggling with or suffering or maybe they've lost faith or maybe they've gone the other direction or whatever it may be, you have experienced a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of God's heart. I think of the parable of the lost sheep. But praise God, he desires relationship, but he also requires faithfulness. He requires faithfulness. Next week, we're gonna see God's mercy and his plan of salvation and redemption. As we go into this year, we're gonna see how God foreshadowed the coming of his son to intervene in a sinful world. And I want to challenge all of us, if we have struggled with those questions, if God is real, why is there so much struggle? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much evil? Why isn't my life better than when it ought to be if God loves me? We live in a world that we face consequences of actions, whether it's our own or the actions of other people. We face those consequences. But as God will show and he'll see, he is faithful and he is merciful. And if we walk with him, we'll see his presence in our life sustaining us through all the hardship, all the suffering, and all the struggle. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, as we come before you, Lord, we are in a fallen world. We are in a world that is sinful. We live in a world that has been corrupted. But Lord, you are not only holy and just, but Lord, you are merciful. And Lord, I don't know if the struggles that we experience will lead us to you. But Lord, I pray if there's anyone here struggling, suffering, to the point where they're asking, God, why? Why must I experience this? Why must it continue on? Lord, I pray, as you said even to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Lord, I pray that you would meet the, the heart of someone who's struggling now. Remind them, Lord God, the suffering, the struggle may be for a moment. But your love, your mercy, and forgiveness is for eternity. We thank you, Lord God. 
exalts your name in Jesus' name. Amen.